Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. He didn't smoke or drink, didn't even drink uh, caffeine or Coca-Cola. Ten days before the world would know who he was, before he became so famous that when he went to restaurants... Waiters would actually take, if he had a corn cob left on his dinner plate, they would take that from him, you know, take it and, oh my gosh, I can't believe what I got. Throngs of people would gather around buildings, like if they knew that he was in there. Ten days before that, the whole world, nobody even knew who this guy was. There was one article that was written in the New York Times, didn't really get much attention, not much acclaim. He dropped out of the University of Wisconsin when he was a sophomore, his second year. All he ever wanted to do was fly just wanted to be an aviator. He would actually fly over 200 flights with no technical training, none. He would persuade nine flinty businessmen from St. Louis to back him with some money, to give him some money because he wanted to make the first transatlantic trip in the air. Right? And he told them, pretty amazing, he tells them, listen, if you give me this money, X amount of, it costs him about $10,000 for this plane that he would actually buy. Many of you understand the light bulb should be going off who this person is. He said, if you give me this money, I'll put the title St. Louis on the plane, and then down the road, it will help business in the whole St. Louis area. Pretty incredible. The likely scenario was, though, I mean, you look at it, it's a pretty dubious proposition. The likely scenario was that the backers would be associated with the death of this idealistic young aviator. (laughs) Realizing he didn't know how far it was from Long Island to Paris, France, he actually went to his local library, and there he had a globe, he had a piece of string, and he measured with the piece of string how far it actually was. How about the plane that he actually used to make the first transatlantic trek across? The plane was, many historians have called the plane a flying gas tank. Others called it a flying tent. The cockpit was moved from the front of the plane to the actual back of the plane, which wasn't the norm back then. Which meant, you're like, what does that mean? It meant he had zero visibility when he was actually taking off from Roosevelt Field. Zero. No idea what was going on. He was so worried about the weight of this plane that he, got, he made it as light as he possibly could, even going down to the point of ripping off the edges of the maps that he had. I mean, the guy was crazy. He took the regular, the regular seat out of the plane and he put a white wicker seat because it was lighter. The guy was pretty extraordinary and he was pretty crazy. Bill Bryson, an author, is a New York Times best-selling book out right now. It's called 1927. This is what he writes. He said, his plane had no radio. It was a single-engine propeller plane. He carried no lifeboat, almost no backup supplies. He flew an unstable plane for a day and a half through two storms in darkness while balancing the flow of fuel through 14 valves and navigating his way without landmarks. When he needed to check his position, he spread his workout on his his lap. He performed tasks that would test a crew of three. This guy was out of his mind. If you don't know who it is by now, it's Charles Lindbergh, the spirit of St. Louis, 1927. 
Roosevelt Field, Long Island. He takes off. Maybe you haven't heard this part of the story. This, this, what a miracle it was that this man was ever, ever able to do what he did. He was completely out of his mind. There was a reward, $25,000 reward that a, a wealthy American businessman had put out there and said, the first person that can do this to fly from Long Island to Paris will get this. The four previous people had died. And here is this guy that says, you know what? I think I'll be the first one to do it. He takes off. He barely cleared the telephone lines there at Roosevelt Field. So the flight almost ended even before it really started. In, in him writing about this story, he would, he would say later on, as he was flying there through this crazy storm, right? The single propeller plane going through the storm to stay awake since he didn't get any sleep the night before. None. Not a wink of sleep the night before. He would smack himself in the face. He would sing, him, he would sing himself songs. He would stomp his feet just to stay awake. Incredible passion and endurance by this man. I think, you know, the problem, I'm a history teacher, if you don't know that, the problem is, like, you probably sat in your history class, and you're like, oh, yeah, Charles Lindbergh, and he, he, he went across on this plane, and it was a pretty easy endeavor. It was the exact opposite. It was a crazy mission, one that he accomplished. And I like to think, you know, I say, I, I say to myself, what if he never tried that? What if he played it safe with his life? What if he played it safe? We would not be talking about him today. You know, there's something you need to understand, and it's to, to play it safe is risky. Did you get that? To play it safe is risky. And he's somebody that understood that. Did you ever read your Bible and see the lunatics? Why I'm telling you the story? Did you ever read about some of the lunatics in the Bible? Crazy people. I know there's a movie coming out about Noah. Well, last time I checked, Noah didn't live in a flood zone, but he builds this boat, right, for over... A hundred years. Crazy. Elijah never called down fire from heaven before, right? Daniel shouldn't have got on his knees and prayed every day. He knew what awaited him if he violated the king's decree that there was actually a lion's den. What was Moses thinking when he pointed his staff at the Red Sea? Crazy people. And yet you look at society today, you look at Christianity today. Oh my God, it's so tame. We have become so civilized. I'm already going out of order with my notes. It's fun. We really have. We've become so civilized. You know, I, I wasn't going to throw this in, but Pastor Joe would like this. A, a Rocky scene. I don't know if you remember this. It, it's Rocky, is it Rocky Three, And Clubber Lang, remember the guy with the mohawk, Mr. T? It's before he's going to fight him. And he's been the champion. And he's had like nine or ten matches where he's defended his title. And he's there with Mickey. Remember the old guy, Mickey? And he's like, Rock, this guy's not made for you. He's going to knock your block off. And they're having the whole conversation, right? They're going on and on. And they sit down at the end of this. And it's one of the best lines in the movie. And Mickey says to him, he says, when a fighter becomes civilized, that's the worst thing that can happen to him. And you know what, Rock? You become civilized. I'm here to tell you this morning, we as a church have become civilized. We have become tame. We have become predictable. It's not an hour, as you heard before, to to stay asleep. It's an hour that we wake up as the body of Christ and realize that there is so much at stake for our individual lives and the life of this church, and we are living in such a pivotal moment in history. We're getting closer to the end. 
Do you need, I mean, look, just look out in the world, outside of this church. Just look at all the turmoil and the strife, things that are taking place. And I know through the generations, through the centuries, people have said that, no, church, this is the hour that we need to be awake, the bride of Christ. And God is calling us in this hour to do some crazy things, to take some risks. If you look at the title of this, I'm going to do this for a couple of weeks, I took the title from a book. This is loosely based on, on a book written by a guy named Mark Batterson. I just love the title. I said, you know what? I'm going to go with the title. And I told some of you to read this book. It's called In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. And it's actually a story I first learned about in a seminary course. I don't know. And it just, it never, it, it always stuck with me. It, I couldn't get it out of my head as we were studying it. And then reading this book, I thought it was a great little read. And I said, you know what, I'm going to do a series on this. I was going to just use it at a men's retreat. I said, you know what, I'm going to do it on a Sunday. I'm going to run a little series with it. Isn't that a beautiful picture? You see that lion sitting up there? So a couple of times here, I will refer to that. If you would like to read the book, again, it's a wonderful read. But that's where the title of the uh, series comes from. And uh, there's an obscure passage. There really are two. I'm looking at one. If you have your Bibles, it's in 2 Samuel chapter 23. How many of you are familiar with David's mighty men? I've never preached a sermon on this. And always another book that really resonated with me. This is at least a decade ago. Jim Cimbala's Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. And he has a great chapter on, the, on David's mighty men. And I would strongly urge you to go home. You can find, if you go into 2 Samuel, you can also go to 1 Chronicles. And you can read some of the exploits of these incredible people, these incredible men of God who gathered around. This is about 3,000 years ago. This is during the time of King David. And this is the text. Let's read it together. 2 Samuel 23, verses 20 to 23. Benaiah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kubzil, who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. And he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, so he went down to him with a staff, wrestled the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah the son of Jehoiada did, and won a name among three mighty men. He was more honored than the thirty, but he did not attain to the first three, and David appointed him over his guard. Now, another little fact about me, and you know, I've said this many times before, I'm in love with special ops. I'm in love with all the, the Navy SEALs and the, the Army Rangers. If you didn't watch The Lone Survivor, I mean, that kind of movie, I mean, that just gets my, my blood moving. And this reminds me, this character, Benaiah, that we're going to look at is an amazing man of God. It doesn't really start right here. I mean, you see that this is the part of the story that God wanted us to really see. There's other pieces to it that we're not going to get to right now. But is this guy really crazy when you think about it? He goes up against two Moabites, and I would say the odds are two to one, and they're not in his favor. He goes up then against this great Egyptian who's probably about seven feet tall, belongs in the NBA, really big guy. Right? And it's a tale of the tape. The guy has a spear. I mean, he's got a longer reach. Usually the guy that is shorter, you're, you're at a great disadvantage. And then my favorite part of the story, that obviously the title of the series, he goes into a pit on a snowy day and fights a lion. In case you don't know much about lions, all right, that, where is it? Go on the wrong way. Oops. 
All right, there's our lion again. I just want you to stare at him. I want, you to, I want him to roar at you. Did you know the roar of a lion can be heard four miles away? Do you know that the average male lion will grow to eight feet long without, without measuring its tail? Did you know that the average lion could kill a human being with one paw, one swipe, and crush your skull like an egg? Did you know that the average lion has five times better vision than somebody, a human that has 20-20 vision? The average lion can leap 30 feet in a single bound? Oh, he is truly the master of all the animals out there. I mean, and listen, the closest I've ever come, I don't know if you've been on a safari, the closest I've ever come is like going to like Disney World, right? You go on the safari, and they've probably given that lion tranquilizers, and they've probably fed that thing really well, because you sit in there, and you don't really mind, you see him in the distance, and he's kind of just hanging out, right? You animal rights activists are a little worried right now, what they're doing down in Disney, right? In Animal World, whatever the place was. I don't know, Megan would be upset with me right now if I didn't get the name right. But... To chase a lion, did you notice that in the text? It wasn't the lion is chasing him. Last time I checked, you see a lion somewhere, you're probably going to run as fast as you can, even though a lion can run 35 miles an hour. Oh, that's it? Wow, kind of slow. 35 miles an hour. What an amazing beast. You know, you know what is it? Barnum and Bailey, they have lion tamers. I don't know any lion chasers. And the text doesn't really tell us, the text doesn't tell us exactly, the text doesn't tell us exactly how he defeated the lion. He doesn't have a Land Rover. He doesn't have a shotgun. We know that. I would love to know, though, how did he actually defeat this lion? How many of you are familiar with this story? You've studied this. That's what I thought. Not many of you. One commentator put it this way. He said, he points out, this is the worst possible foe in the worst possible place, under the worst possible conditions. Did you get that? A foe that you would not want to go up against. Just giving you a little history, a little background here. This is 3,000 years ago during the time of King David. Israel is very unsettled. It is a dangerous place to live. There are hyenas and jackals, and there are bears from Syria. There are lions from Asia that were around, and they were always looking for easy prey. When you read this story, it, it probably doesn't light, light up for you, but for me in studying it, I'm like, wow, this was something they always had to guard against. There were always animals that were out on the prey looking to take human beings out. Was this a case where Benaiah is defending a group of people, his town, his community? We don't know. Again, God has not given us the details as to what happened, but all I know is that this guy was a lion chaser. And I want to be a lion chaser. How about yourself? <laughs> and you look at the wide-angle view, though. Again, 21st century American society. This guy is crazy. Who picks a fight with someone that is as strong as a lion, right? What do you, tell? you, you pick a fight with somebody maybe that's weaker. You certainly don't go after an animal that, that, that could easily destroy you. But that's what happens here. You know, maybe if he went after a kitty cat on a sunny day, he went into the pit, come here, little kitty cat. I would understand that. It would make sense. But it doesn't make any sense to go into a pit 
on a snowy day when your hands are freezing and you're cold against a lion, a pit. The lion has better vision than you, you do. The lion is more agile than you are. The lion weighs probably about 500 pounds. Crazy, totally irrational. <laughs> we live in a day where we say, God, how many of you pray? God, please reduce the risks in my life. God, make things safe and easy and comfortable. And God says, I love situations where the odds are so great, where no, there is no way humanly possible that you can get out of this because I want to show my power off. When the odds are against you, that's when God can step in and show forth great miracles in your life. So I ask, who is really crazy? Are we the ones that are crazy when we avoid risks, when God is asking us to take risks in our lives? Really? I think we look at people sometimes in the church, not even just outside the church, in the church. Man, what a risk that, risk that person took. There's somebody in here that wrote a check out this morning, in the tithe and offering, and you probably took a huge risk. Given what was in your bank account, you said, you know what? I'm going to take a huge risk here. There are people in here, maybe your marriage is suffering, and God is asking you to take big risks and maybe getting help in that marriage, maybe not putting your head in the sand in that marriage. Maybe you have kids that are wayward and you need to take some risks. Maybe there are risks at work. Maybe there's a conversation that you have to have. But I'm telling you, this is the day that we are to take risks and stop sitting back and playing it safe. It's too risky to play it safe. You know, when I think about, I think about the, just the history of the church and how we've become so domesticated, think about what the gospel has really descended into. It's say the sinner's prayer. Like Easter is coming up. I'm sorry. I'm, I have to, I'm just going to be honest. That's the way I am. The, you come to church on Easter, people that don't usually come, and we just say the sinner's prayer, right? And you'll have, you'll have life and eternity, except what Jesus Christ did on a cross for you, and that you'll, you won't go to hell and you'll be in heaven one day. Those are the minimal entrance requirements to what we call Christianity. There is so much more. Is a follower of Christ just not doing certain things? At the end of our life, oh, there were sin- look at all the sins that I never did. A follower of Christ is doing some crazy things, taking some amazing risks with our lives, living uncomfortably, and and letting God lead us into unsafe places and conditions and trusting that he knows what he's doing and he's so much bigger than we could ever think, imagine, or understand. For centuries, the nations that consider themselves civilized chose weapons to eradicate those that were weak, even the innocent. How about the Romans during the first century? They adopted, or they, they borrowed, I should say, from the Greeks, the word barbarian. Did you know that? They borrowed that from the Greeks. And anybody that, that went up against them, anybody that they looked at as being uncivilized, they just took out. Barbarians. Where does the church grow up, friends? The church grew up in the first century. And the first Christians, you know what they were called? They were called barbarians. And you look at some of the emperors, whether it was Caligula or, or others that were out there, and they, tried, they took Christians out by the thousands. And those same Christians started a revolt, and they turned Rome upside down. 
But something happened. Remember what I said to you about when Nikki said to Rocky? They became civilized. Because eventually, Rome became Christian. Yeah, and everybody got safe and comfortable. People weren't being persecuted anymore. Oh, and life became so much easier. And then you take it through the centuries and the church, as we became civilized, we put on robes and we built cathedrals and we accumulated wealth and power. We lost our barbarian way. We lost it. We became civilized and we became tame. And Jesus Christ, when he came 2,000 years ago, isn't it interesting that God started a revolution against the religion that he started? Did you get that? God started a revolution against the religion that he started thousands of years ago in the form of sending his son, Jesus Christ. Enough of religion. We have to start a revolution. Time to usurp power, but in a different way than what society had thought. It wasn't but with the sword. It was with peace, and it was with love, and it was with sacrifice, and it was with generosity. And that movement, which started so long ago, is still going on. But again, saints of City on a Hill Community Church, we've become civilized. We've accepted less than what we were made for. We've accepted less than who we are to really be as the bride of Christ. Now going back to the story, can you imagine David flipping through? He becomes the head of the bodyguard. Are you following this? Becomes the head of David's bodyguard. He's the man. He protects him. Can you imagine David flipping through like resumes, right? Is the first guy. Who's this guy? Uh, he worked at the University of Jerusalem. He studied security, whatever. Second guy, uh, Brinks Armor Chariot. Don't call us, we'll call you third guy went into a pit with a lion on a snowy day when can you start right right i woke you up there you're sleepwalking today i know the class got pushed ahead that's all right i'll wake you up yeah goes into a pit with a lion on a snowy day that's my guy did you know that david when he was younger before he goes up against goliath batterson i don't understand certain pieces why he didn't talk about in this book that's why I get, it's a great book. Read it. Just me as a, you know, as a preacher and somebody getting into it. David, when he was younger, before he goes up against Goliath, he tells King Saul, I went up against the lion and the bear. You see, the leader understood and the leader went through incredible battles. And he said, you know what? This man has been through some things and he understands I went through certain things. If this man didn't go through this situation, other difficult situations, he would never have risen to that position of power. Did you understand that? Did you hear that for your own life? We have to go through difficult situations to be refined. God has to make us, into, he has to show us, look, you have to, listen, the gospel has been descended, it's descended into this too, that it's all about being, life being easy and finding safety, that once you're a Christian, we say it all the time, but once you're a Christian, that you're not going to have any hardship. Where is that in the Bible? It's nowhere. That's when you truly, when you are in the pits of life, that is when you really come to know who God is. It's not when you're on top of the world, everything's great at your job, everything's great with your family. No, it's when things are really rough, when you find out who God really is. When you find out how deep your roots really go with your God. It's one thing to talk about it. It's one thing to come to church. Yeah, everything's good. Life's great. Y'all, how y'all doing? Yeah. Quite another thing when you leave this place and you're going through really tough times. 
and there's no one around, you wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning. God, where are you? Do you see me? Do you know me? And God says, I'm right there. I know exactly what I'm doing. I know exactly where you are, and you have to go through this. Listen, if his son didn't have to go through pain, right, why should we not have to go through pain? Why do we always think that? Honestly, why? because we live in a culture that says run from pain. Run from suffering as fast as you can. Avoid it any way you can. Buy whatever product you can. Buy whatever thing that is going to help you to anesthetize that pain. Just numb out. Sit in front of a TV set. Oh, doesn't that feel good? I sat there a couple of weeks ago. I'll be honest with you. I did this. I did this a couple of weeks ago. I watched a TV show, right? Some of you know, what the, I'm not even going to mention what the name of the TV show is because you'll judge me. <laughs> I'm, st- I'm quite serious. I sat there and watched the TV show that came out though, right? I sat there and watched it. It was 13 hours. I watched it in like 24 hours. Literally. Addicted. Next one, next episode. Next episode. Next episode. <laughs> Crazy. I sat there, maybe a weekend. I don't know, I'm exaggerating, but maybe a weekend. I watched this. And at the end of it, you know, I said, what am I left with? I'm not saying that we're not supposed to. Listen, we are, you should go to the movies. And I'm going to go watch Noah. You should go watch Noah. I'm not a, you know I'm not a religious guy. Not, this, that's not what this church is. But really, at the end of the day, I was like, what did I really get from this? I felt like I had to take a bath by the time I was done. And you know what the sick thing is? When the next season comes out, I'm going to want to watch it again. <laughs> I'm a pretty strange dude, pretty... But I'm honest, right? I'm honest with you. I'm not going to pulley punches with you. So there's David. He's going through the resumes. And you know, I think we look at the story too, getting back to the story. Don't you say, I just love how God scripts things. Isn't it great? Here he is. If Hollywood is making the scene, it's like snowing really hard. And we don't know what weapon he has, whatever. He doesn't have a weapon. It's Hollywood. And he goes down into the pit, right? And he just stares at the lion. He's not cold. The lion's cold, but he's certainly not cold. And he just takes it out, and you're like, man, I would, man, that's me. I want to go down there, and I, that's, I, would, I want to do that. And I look at this, and I go, that's really not what's going on in here. Because when I look at our own lives, how come, we need a paradigm shift. Because how come when things are going bad in our lives, we look at things, and we just go, man, maybe for that guy, Benaiah, yeah, he was pretty tough. Tough dude, rose up to be David's, like, head bodyguard but not in my life. Do you see what I'm going through right now? I'm here to tell you, friends, there will come a day when people will hear about your stories. There will come a day in eternity on the other side when people will talk about your stories and how you endured and whatever your pits were. I don't think you're literally going to be in a pit with a lion on a snowy day, but there will be situations that feel like you actually are and everything is at stake with how we handle things and how we view God and just how we trust him in the midst of that. You know, and next week, I have to, I'll just say it now, I'll allude to it quick. You know what's really interesting about this story? Benaiah is talked about in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 22. You see, he's one of the guys, I don't know if, how well you know your Bible, David is on the run from King Saul for a long period of time, and David's in a place called the Cave of Adullam. And the Bible says about 400 men gather there. You know who gathers there? Those that are distressed, those that are discontented, and those that are in debt. Come on in! Let's have a party! What's, oh, you got family problems? Great! You have no money? You lost your house? Come on in! There's plenty of room here in the cave! one of the men that was there. 
You read the end of the story. What about the beginning and the middle of the story? Ooh, Hollywood likes to leave those pieces out. You see, he didn't start out this way. He went through hell and high water to get to this point in his life. Oh gosh, I love Benaiah. Did I tell you that already? Anybody like counterfactual theory? What if scenarios? Again, a history guy. Like, what happens if Hitler doesn't take on a two, you know, front war, World War II, all those kind of questions? What would have happened? What would have happened if Benaiah doesn't do this? What if he doesn't go down in the pit on the snowy day? Imagine that. And he dies. Imagine he dies. He goes down in the pit and he dies, and people are at the funeral and they're like, this guy's he's a little crazy. Just a tad bit crazy. Went into a pit with a lion on a snow. What an idiot! What was wrong with this guy? Can you imagine that? We have to be people that take risks. I wish we had a video audio of this, but you know what? We will one day. What was he doing there? Did he take like a selfie and he has like the lion's head and he's like hanging out there? Did he get on his knees? I don't know. Did he praise God? I really think, genuinely, this is my interpretation, I genuinely think that personal revival broke out there. Personal revival broke out there. And you know what? There will come a day, and you may laugh, but I think of this all the time when I watch ESPN. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That in heaven, there will be like an ESPN, and I'm going to go slow, and I'm going to like freeze frame when Benaiah is like right there and it's like the finishing blow when he takes the lion out. Think about all those great scenes from the Bible and history. I think we're going to be able to watch them over and over and over again. Where do you want to go? I'm going to go hang out over here at this, this station, whatever we have in heaven, but you're going to be able to see those scenes, what people did. That's all I think of when I read the Bible. I want to see this scene played out. They do a decent job in Hollywood, but I want to see what it was really like when God's power was really there and there was no way humanly possible, humanly speaking, that somebody could do this. <laughs> Can I leave you with the last couple of minutes? Can I leave you with a question? How big is your God? You've heard that before. It's not like you haven't heard it. How big is your God? You know, most of our problems are really circumstantial. They're not perceptional. It's our perception of how we think those issues and problems really are. It's not our circumstances. It's how we see the problem, and it's how we see who God is. This is part of the linchpin of my theology. Stay with me. This is what it says in Isaiah. Follow me here. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Look at this. And you, a, a very famous passage of, a passage of Scripture. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Right? You've heard this passage before, but it probably doesn't, I, I need to make it, I need to, for it to make sense. How many of you knew that light travels at 186,000 miles a second? Knew that, right? Some of you? Okay. Science people here? Good. The time you snap your fingers, just me snapping my fingers, light circumnavigated this globe, right? Six times. Want to do it again? happened six times. Just in that. Are you kidding how fast that is? Wow. I'm not done yet. Stay with me. You might get a little lost here, but try to stay with me. Let's put it another way. The sun is 93 million miles away. Pretty incredible distance, right? Our next door neighbor. If you could drive to the sun traveling 65 miles an hour, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, taking no pit stops, not hitting any rest stops, it would take you more than 163 years to get there. Whoa! 
wow. Did you know that our sunlight is only eight minutes long? The light that is reflected off the sun, when it, like yesterday, when it warmed your face, did you know it was eight minutes? It took eight minutes for it to get to you? Eight minutes? I'm not done yet. The European Southern Observatory has discovered a galaxy they estimate is 13.2 billion light years away. Yep, Buzz Lightyear is not here to help me today. If you do the math, one light year is equivalent to 5.88 trillion miles. So, so here it is. The furthest galaxy is 13.2 billion times 5.88 trillion miles away. Guess what? God is saying the distance between your thoughts and his thoughts on your best day for 13.2 billion miles away. You're laughing, but think about that. 13.2 billion miles away. No, no, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Stop minimizing me. Stop making me smaller. Stop looking at all of your problems and saying that I am not powerful enough to intercede and change what you see. I can change your perception. I can change your circumstances. Please don't underestimate God. Can I get a little heady now? Yeah. All right. I see some of you sleeping, but that's okay. Wired Magazine. All right. Wired Magazine. They had recently, recently, they had a great article on what they call the new atheism. And in case you haven't heard, listen, as somebody that teach, I, I teach sociology, I'm around this all the time. How many kids growing up now are atheists? I can't stress it enough. We need an agnostic. And which is fine. These kids are searching. But listen, there is a movement that is coming in. You know what this article, the title of the article was, The Crusade Against Religion. And the article was talking about not just condemning the belief in God, get this, but respect for the belief in God. Wow. Did you hear that? The respect for the belief in God hey, they're entitled to whatever they want to write. They're entitled to their opinion. But I'm entitled to mine too. My faith is not logical. My faith is not irrational. My faith is not illogical. My faith is not irrational. My faith is super logical. My faith is super rational. You know what the problem with atheists is? And and listen, these people are a lot smarter than I am. But they refuse to believe in what they can't comprehend with their cerebral cortex. If it doesn't fit into my cerebral cortex and I can't measure it and I can't study it, then I can't believe it. That's the world you live in right now. And we are looked at as crazy when we talk about a resurrection, when we talk about real miracles happening in a Bible thousands of years ago. People look at us like we're crazy. Welcome to the battle. Those are trying to. How about this? There was a study. This is from Florida State University. Now, this guy is a, oh gosh, he's, in, um, he's into oceanography and limnology, which I just found out this week is the study of open water science. Another really brilliant guy. Um, he wrote an article, ready, ready for this title? Is there um, a paleolimnological explanation for walking on water on the Sea of Galilee? All right, talking about Jesus. I'm not making this up. You've got to follow this. So, this is tethered to what I'm talking about. You may go, where the heck is he taking this? This is, I know what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> He says there may have been a unique combination of atmospheric conditions that caused patches of floating ice on the Sea of Galilee. (laughs) Now listen, this is a real weather phenomenon, and it happens, he says, every thousand years. 
So he's really, the bottom line was like, whether or not this really happened, he's like, I'll leave that for like the biblical, you know, people. They can all talk. He's not, he's not a, he's a humanist. He's not a, he's not a Christian. But I don't know, like I was thinking about it. I'm like, I don't know what's like more cool. Like Jesus walking on water or Jesus like jumping on like floating pieces of ice in like the middle of the night, high waves, high wind and making his wake. What's a bigger miracle? I don't know. I kind of like the Jesus surfing on the ice better. Now, I said to you, he's a, nat- he's a naturalist. A naturalist is somebody who doesn't have a cognitive category for anything that is supernatural. Anything that's supernatural. So we kind of dealt with that. But for what it's worth, another scientist, not a Christian, but his name is Albert Einstein. You know what Einstein said? There are two ways to live your life. One is if nothing is a miracle, and the other as if everything is a miracle. How do you live your life? What if it's really an aberration when we see people that are sick and die? What if that's really not reality? What if when we actually see a miracle, that's the way things really are? And it's not the way things are supposed to be. It's the way things were before the fall of man. And then when I look at the end of the Bible, I see that it's the way things ultimately will be one day. You believe that? God is uncontrollable, friends. Why do we try to control him? God is mysterious. It's called anthropomorphism. I always get it wrong. Anthropomorphism. Isn't that a tongue tire? Yeah. And this is that we create God in our own image. One philosopher, I love what he said. He says, because become so anthropomorphic. Get it right. I can't say it. You get the point. Um, he said that we've, God created us in his image, and we've just returned the favor and recreated God in our own image. How true is that? Isn't that what we've done? I love what Abe W. Tozer says. Tozer says, two, I'm going to give you two quotes. He says, the low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A high view of God is the solution to 10,000 temporal problems. Temporal. They're, they're, they're here today, gone tomorrow. They're not lasting. He went on to say this. I love this too. This God we have made, and because we have made him, we can understand him. Because we have created him, he can never surprise us, never overwhelm us, nor astonish us, nor transcend us. Wow, right? Is it, I mean, isn't that really true? And we wonder sometimes, like, we can't, oh, I just, look at the situation I'm in. We have shrunk God down to our size. We've just returned the favor. Let's recreate him in our own image. No more running, friends. You know, Thomas Jefferson, give me a little more time here. Thomas Jefferson who, this is what he said about the teachings of Jesus, right? He said, they are the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which has ever been offered to man. Talking about Jesus with Thomas Jefferson. Again, I said this during my Jesus sermon around Christmas time. All of our founding fathers, he was a deist. He is not a Christian, okay? But he did respect Jesus' teachings. We can't make a general, general statement. We have to be true to history. Not all of them were, right? Some of them, not all of them. He said this, I also mentioned, but I never gave you the story. He ripped out every single miracle that was in the Bible. Three or four nights it took him, and he sat up in his new King James Bible, right? Literally did this. Start virgin birth, cut it out. Uh, Jesus walking on water, cut it out. Miracle here, cut it out. Miracle here, cut it out. Anything he could not rationally understand, he cut out of his Bible. Amazing, right? Now, you may say, how many of you would ever, like, would you ever cut something out of your Bible? 
college football really quick. I'm in, a, in the locker room, like before a game. Lunatic comes in. I had my Bible out. Lunatic comes in. He's like, let's burn some of the Bible. Let's burn a couple of pages before the game. And I'm like, oh, geez. What do I do right now with this lunatic? I was like, no, no, we're not going to burn the Bible. It's okay. You didn't find it funny. I guess you had to be there. But it was funny at the time, trust me, because I'm like, I can't believe this is happening. Would any of us cut out things in our Bible? Really, would you? Would you ever take scissors to your Bible and cut things out? You're lying. <laughs> we're lying, all of us in here, myself included, if I said no. You know why? Because we suffer from cut-and-paste theology. Ooh, I got gotcha. you. Because, see, there are certain things that are in this Bible that we find uncomfortable, and we read it, and we're like, uh, I like this, but I like this verse. I, like, uh, I don't like this verse. I like this story. Uh, I don't really like that story. This one makes me feel too uncomfortable. And if we're not careful, friends, we can become Christian atheists. Christian atheists. It was a great book, and we did a series years ago. Tom and I did a series called Christian Atheism. And we did the series on that, and we talked about how, for many of us, we give assent to certain things and we come to church, but do we really believe what God, the message that God has given us here? Do we really believe what Jesus said in the Gospels? If we're not careful, we can become people and say, you know what, that doesn't fit in my category. I can't accept that. God's looking for something deep, deeper. See, either our theology conforms to our reality or our reality is going to conform to our theology. And when our, when our reality conforms to our theology, music, you can come up. When that happens, our God gets bigger and bigger. We, we look at this world and we say, let's let reality conform to what we know about who our God really is. I'm going to close with this. Prince Caspian, which is one of the books of the um, Chronicles of Narnia series. There's a great dialogue between Lucy, one of the kids, and Aslan. Of course, this is C.S. Lewis. Aslan is a lion. He's a, the Christ-like figure in the book. They haven't seen each other in a year. This is the dialogue. Lucy says... Aslan, you're bigger. Aslan says, that's because you're older, little one. She says, it's not because you are. Aslan quips back, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. You see, friends, he becomes bigger in our lives when we magnify him through worship. When we come to a, a, an open church meeting for Lent, he gets magnified. We go to 40,000 feet. Our problems become minuscule. They become so small, infinitesimal, we can't even see them. That's what happens when we get together with other like-minded believers and we're in a small group and we talk about our lives, we share our lives together. Problems get smaller. When we pray and we get up and we say, you know what, God, as Tom said last week, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and everything else will be added unto you. When we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, you know what happens? He becomes magnified. He becomes bigger and our problems become smaller. Friends, how big is your God? I leave you with a Chesterton quote. G.K. Chesterton, great writer, early part of the last century. Scott, you can just say it. It's not working. Chesterton said, Hi, Thomas. Is that working? You'll want to see this quote. It's really good. I thought it was really powerful. Music even stop playing. Oh, there it is. How much happier you would be, how much more of you there would be if the hammer of a higher God could smash your small cosmos. I pray that this week, moving forward, as we continue this, I pray that your small cosmos get smashed. I pray that it gets crushed.
Lord, I ask that right now you would crush our small cosmos. Lord, I, I, I come in here and know I feel the heaviness of all of us, Lord, and how we battle with how big you really are. Father, you can be that far away and our thoughts can be so off there, but yet you can be so close and you know more than a breath away. Help us to see how small our problems really are. Help us to see how big you really are. Help us to see that miracles still happen. You're still in the miracle working business. And Lord, I ask that you would pour out your spirit, Lord, in all flesh in these last days in which we're living in and fulfill the prophecies, the prophecies in Joel and all the Old Testament. Lord, pour out your spirit. Do what only you can do. Open blind eyes. Remove the scales. Amen. Aren't you sick of you live, we live in a world and you go out there and you leave this place and so many people don't see and they don't believe. Doesn't it grieve your heart? May we be lights in this, in this dark world, lights in a dark place for other people. May they see. Lord, it's only you can do. You sit there sometimes and right, do you ever wonder like, how come more people aren't interested in having a relationship with them? But we're all, we're all created for it. We can't run from that. We try to. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.